I don't know much about your musical preferences. I don't know if there are any jazz fans out there. I read an article by David Haju in the Atlantic magazine. He's a culture writer, and he, he tells a story of dropping into a jazz club in Manhattan in August, a time of year in New York where so many people are traveling and gone, maybe much like Singapore in June. Anyway, I'll let him tell the story. I walked in on a set in progress and took the next to last seat on the burgundy leather banquette that runs along the east wall. A small combo was running through the bebop classic Blues and Boogie at a duly vertiginous speed. There was no mistaking the band leader, Charles McPherson, an alto saxophonist, but the performance was languid and my eyes drifted, settling eventually on the trumpet player because he was turned away from the audience and even from the rest of the band, staring at the floor. Although I couldn't place him, he looked vaguely familiar, like an older virgin version of Wynton Marsalis. During the third song, the trumpeter stepped to the center of the bandstand to take a solo. Excuse me, I whispered to the fellow next to me, a, a jazz guitarist I later learned. Is that Wynton Marsalis? I very seriously doubt that, he snapped back. The fourth song was a solo for the trumpeter, who I could now see was indeed Marsalis, but who no more sounded than looked like what I expected. He played a ballad, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you, unaccompanied. Marsalis appeared deeply attuned to its melancholy. He performed the song in murmurs and sighs at points, nearly talking the words in notes. It was a wrenching act of creative expression. When he reached the climax, Marsalis played the final phrase, the title statement, in declarative tones, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a bit longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. The room was silent until, at the most dramatic point, someone's cell phone went off, blaring a rapid sing-song melody in electronic beeps. People started giggling and picked up their drinks. The moment, the whole performance unraveled. Marsalis paused for a beat, motionless, his eyebrows arched. I scrawled on a sheet of notepaper, magic ruined. The cell phone offender scooted into the hall as the chatter in the room grew louder. Still frozen at the microphone, Marsalis replayed the silly cell phone melody note for note. Then he repeated it and began improvising variations on the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo and ended up exactly where he had left off, with you. The ovation was tremendous. And that's why jazz is great. But David Haju's writing there highlights a beautiful and a biblical truth. Redemption is even more glorious than creation. We've been studying the book of Exodus the past six months. It describes how God formed the nation of Israel, how he, he took the extended family of one man Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, and formed them into a nation, <clears throat> a nation created for worship, 
Remember the plagues and the Passover, the flight to the Red Sea. Well, it culminates, or so we thought, on top of Mount Sinai. There God gives Israel the law, the book of the covenant, and plans for the tabernacle where God will dwell in the midst of his people. It's a vision of a return to Eden where the dwelling place of God is once again with man. Well, at least it would have seemed that way if the book had ended in chapter 31. Caleb led us last week in a study not of the mountaintop, but of the valley below. And that very sad day where God's people seemed to throw away the covenant, rejecting God, making themselves a calf idol, and everything seems ruined. I say seems because the story we're reading and the story that you and I find ourselves living in is not primarily a story about the glory of creation. It's a story about the even more glorious redemption. What God does with covenant breakers, idol makers, people like you and I. We need this text before us because it helps us understand how God restores the sinner. It's a story of restoration, a story of revival. It's a story we hope to find ourselves in. So let's turn to Exodus 33. In the Pew Bibles, it's on page 68. Page 68, the main idea of our text this week is this. It is the glory of God to restore a repentant people through the prayers of a favored intercessor. It is the glory of God to restore a repentant people through the prayers of a favored intercessor. And we'll consider that in three points. Number one, a repentant people. A repentant people. Number two, a favored intercessor, a favored intercessor. And third and finally, the glory of God, the glory of God. It's my prayer that this text will encourage us all to return to God for restoration and revival. So let's dive into our first point, a repentant people, and read the first six verses. Exodus chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. 
Now, chapter 32 ended, as we said, with God having agreed not to destroy Israel. Uh, He did bring consequences for sin in the form of the actual offenders. I I think those that were killed with the sword by the Levites were the ones who were actually bowing down to the golden calf at that time. And then there was a plague that God sent on the broader nation for allowing the idolatry to go on. Here at the start of our chapter, God tells Moses, it's time to leave Sinai, where they've been camped for the better part of a year. And notice that things start really well. He he says that they're to go to the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God says he's going to send his angel before them to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And he reminds them that this is a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. So safe passage and material prosperity are in their future. But God says he will not go up among them lest he consume them on the way because he says they're a stiff-necked people. Now, what does this mean? First, we need to realize and and be careful not to attribute the wrong tone of words, tone of voice to God. He's not an angry parent here saying, I'm so frustrated with these kids, I want some space. While it's true that God does grieve over sin, he's an all-wise, all-content, incapable of frustration. So so what does he mean? I I won't go up among them. Remember that when we talk about God's presence, we we really mean his manifest presence. So important that we remember that God is omnipresent. There is no place where God is not. That's why Psalm 139, the psalmist can pray, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. But in God's condescension, as he relates with human beings and especially attaches his name and reputation to human beings, he grants them a special nearness to him, which implies communication and favor and assurance of blessing. But when he does that, there have to be stipulations because God does everything for the sake of his name and his glory. And if he's specially present with a people who are then profaning his name and sinning against him with a high hand, well, his holiness and his wrath must act. So when he says, I can't go up among you lest I destroy you, he means a gracious thing here. He, he means for your sake, because you are so stiff, stiff-necked, so unwilling to turn and be led and obey, You're going to get yourself killed if I don't withdraw my presence. So that's the pronouncement. Uh, Let's stop and consider what this would have been like to hear it. I mean, we might wonder, a people who showed themselves so willing to to go into idolatry, if, if they're told you get safe passage and you get material blessing, it might say, great. That's all we wanted in the first place. I think so many people today are mainly interested in the blessings they think God might give them, not really interested in God himself. But that's not what these people do. Look at this. 
They mourn. They call it a disastrous word, a calamitous word. Friends, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, Jesus says. What it says here about the ornaments they're wearing, the the people were probably dressed very simply. Uh, The fashion they have at their disposal is mainly in the form of of bracelets and and necklets and trinkets that they would wear. Uh, Remember that Egypt uh, gave them all sorts of these things as they left Egypt says they plundered the Egyptians. Some commentators think that many of these, these bracelets and necklaces and things would have been engraved with uh, symbols and pictures of Egyptian deities. And so much as in many parts of the world today, people still wear things to ward off evil spirits. You can go to the Middle East and you'll see many people wearing the evil eye on, on their shirts or in some kind of jewelry. The idea is it, it, it wards off the evil spirits. That may have been going on here. A, a reminder that it's, it's easier to take the people out of Egypt than to take Egypt out of the people. But whatever the case, what we have here is a picture of repentance. It's what God wanted to see in them. When God says there that that I may know what to do with you, he, he means to see whether in the taking off of their ornaments and in the attitude of their hearts, they really have the intention to turn away from sin. And I think their repentance is sincere here. Friends, you know, repentance is always a prerequisite for being restored to God. What is repentance? Well, it involves acknowledging sin as sin. If you're not willing to call sin, sin in your life, there's no beginning. Not not a mistake, not an error, not something understandable under the circumstances, but sin, something that is wrong in the sight of an holy God. That's the, the first step. But then it involves a godly grief over that sin, True sorrow, not not just the consequences of the sin, not just that you got found out, not just that you lost face, but a grief over the sin itself because you're conscious of God. Call sin, sin. Grieve over that sin. And then finally, it manifests itself in action, in a renewed obedience In that sense, repentance is visible. Now, what is not repentance? Well, making peace with your sin. Allowing it to remain in your life. Maybe even as you continue to go through the motions of coming to church and maybe other Christian sorts of things. You can either have peace with God or peace with your sin. But you can't have both. It's one or the other. I was in a grab recently talking to a driver, and he told me that he was a Christian, but he he could not come to a Baptist church. And that's the sort of thing that will, of course, pique the curiosity of a Baptist pastor. So I asked him why. And he told me that he really struggles with um, anger at other drivers. Uh, And, you know, I I, kind of laughed a little bit, you know, don't we all? He said, no, no, it's very serious for me. And he went on to describe how, how angry he gets at them, and he struggles not to curse at them and, and, and want bad things 
You know, I don't know if he's praying imprecatory psalms over these other motorists or not, but he, he told me that the church he had found, the, the pastor had from the pulpit described his own struggle with road rage, <clears throat> and the pastor had normalized it and said, look, it's, it's okay, everybody does it, it's no big deal. And so he said he felt happy in that church. He said, I just have a feeling if I came to your church, you would want me to change. <laughs> well, friends, we're all sinners. I- I- acknowledging our sin is one thing, but making it okay is quite another. There's not two versions of Christianity out there. One where you, you don't have to take action in your struggle with sin, and one where you do. God has called us to repent and believe the good news. That's how Jesus preaching in the gospel is summarized. He preached a lot more than that, but when Mark summarizes his preaching in Mark chapter 1, it was repent and believe the good news. Those are two sides of the same coin. I wonder if you could be described as a repentant person this morning. One of the reasons that we have a prayer of confession in the service each week is to begin each week on the first day of the week being as honest with God about our sins as we can be. It's something that needs to take on regular individual application in all of your lives and in mine. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you about your sin, when, when you hear that voice saying, that, that, was, that was a harsh tone of voice to your spouse or to your kids, you, you need to go before God and say, I'm sorry, that was sin. Please forgive me. Thank you that I'm forgiven because of Christ. And then you need to go make it right with that person if there's someone that you've sinned against. Maybe it's useful for you to remember that that simple call it sin, call it forgiven, and call on God to change you. But it needs to happen every time you're made aware of sin. You can't pass in that moment. You can't move on from that unrepented of sin and just somehow continue in your Christian life. It's a full stop at that moment. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Oh, friend, don't don't leave sin unrepented of. Turn away from your sin. In our text, we see that that's the first step towards restoration. It's repentance. But let's keep reading now in verses 7 and following. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out of the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face 
as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Well, let's stop there for a moment. Verse 7 through 11 that we just read is an aside explaining where and how God and Moses were communicating and where people would go if they had a question to, to put before the Lord. Uh, This tent of meeting uh, was erected outside the camp of Israel, so away from the other living uh, tents where people were living. And and this is a temporary thing. Once the tabernacle is actually constructed, that is where God will meet with his people. It can be a bit confusing because the tabernacle will also be called the tent of meeting. In the rest of the Old Testament, this is the temporary tent of meeting. What's striking here is verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Face to face is a a Hebrew idiom. It it doesn't mean that Moses saw a visible form in the tent. It, It refers to the intimacy that two friends have with each other. And when you think about what makes a friend a friend you know, above shared interests and and history and everything else, it's the level of honest, open communication that you have with someone that makes them your friend. Unguarded, without pretense, deep. The late Tim Keller would often describe a, a friend as someone who always lets you in and never lets you down. I think that's good. I would encourage you, by the way, to cultivate those kinds of relationships. You may, you may sit here and say, well, I, Mark, I don't have those kinds of friendships here. Well, to, to, to have friends, you've got to be a friend. You should be the one risking rejection to try to go deeper with people, to try to build deeper friendships. A healthy church on one level is a web of interconnected friendships at different stages. But don't don't come on Sunday and then rush out afterwards. I mean, all of us have to run the gauntlet of level three, right? It's not easy for me. I'm an introvert. You may not believe that, but I am. But but friends, we, we want to be deeper and deeper friends with each other. But what is just mind-boggling here is that God the Creator would speak to Moses with that kind of intimacy as a man speaks with his friend. Now, this is one of those moments where we have to remember that Moses played a unique role. This, this, wasn't, this level of communication wasn't open to all the Israelites. And yet, our thoughts turn quickly, don't they, to the New Testament, where in the Incarnation, Jesus said about his disciples that, I've called you friends because everything that the Father has made known to me, I've made known to you. You see, there it is again, the level of intimate communication of Jesus with his people. It's described as friendship. What a friend we have in Jesus. Well, let's continue and read about this friend-to-friend dialogue that unfolds, picking it up in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, 
in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, God, said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. We'll stop there. We've said some encouraging things so far. The people's repentance, Moses' ongoing access to God, friendship with God in the tent of meeting. But let's stop and remember that things are not actually going well for Moses at this point. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. The people have committed terrible sin. The covenant seems broken. And now God is proposing to draw back, to withdraw his presence from his people. Moses is like, like a pastor of a church where, where the people don't seem to want God and, and, and God seems to have withdrawn his presence from them. Well, what does Moses do? He prays. He talks to God. He makes his requests known to God. I, I want us to look at three different requests Moses makes here. First, Moses prays for someone to help him. Look at verse 12. God, you've given me a task. Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. I, I think Moses here is referring to the angel that God mentioned earlier. In the chapter earlier in the book, Moses wants clarity on who this angel is and what kind of help he can expect. You know, one of the significant things that we should be regularly praying for as a church is for more help, for more leaders and laborers. We should be praying that God would raise up more elders, more deacons, more people to serve in ministry, and for people who will see the opportunities for ministry that are out there in Singapore and help lead us in the direction of meeting those needs, of reaching those people. We need help here. Moses prays for someone to help him. The second thing he prays is for insight into God's ways. Verse 13. God, you've said, I, I know you by name, and you have found favor, and I have found favor in your sight. Uh, I want to I just pause. Notice, by the way, each of these petitions, Moses quotes God's word back to him. Do you notice that? That's a great little lesson for us about prayer. I, you may feel like you don't know how to pray very well. I don't even know. Pray well. What does that mean? Well, Let's learn from Moses here. Pray God's word. Take God's word and pray it back to him. God, you've said that whatever I do, I should work at it with all my heart as working for you, not for men. I need you to help me do that as I head to the office this morning. God, you've said that, that gray hair is the crown of the aged 
help me to live wisely in a way that the younger generation can look up and, and have a good example. God, you, you've told me to, to raise my children in the training and admonition of the Lord, but I don't know how to do that. Please help me. You see how you, you turn God's word into your prayer. It's just it's a lesson from Moses here. When he prays that, that God would show him his ways, God's ways are God's hidden intents and purposes. Moses wants to know them because he very transparently doesn't understand what's going on. Moses is confused, I think it's safe to say. We're reminded of Isaiah 55. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Moses is sure that God has something planned to make this turn out for the good. <clears throat> he just doesn't know what it is. Show me your ways means something like, what do you have in mind here, Lord? I'm more than a little bewildered. But friends, I think it says a lot about a person when they press into God in the midst of their confusion. When they pray the things they don't understand. Lord, I, I'd like a spouse. That seems like a good thing. Maybe I, I'd like a child. Lord, why don't you give us a child? When you pray in the midst of the things that you don't understand, it shows incredible faith in the Lord as the one who's in control and the one who answers prayer. So do you pray when you're confused? I'm going to pray right now. <laughs> Moses prays for someone to help him. He prays for insight into God's ways. Third, he prays for God's people. Look at verse 13 in the, the latter half of that verse. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Now, the, the, the ESV that we're reading from translates this as an add-on to the previous request, consider too, consider also. That also is not in the Hebrew there. I, I view this as a part of the third and climactic request. Lord, consider that this nation is your people. And I, uh, Caleb helped us think in the last chapter about the pronouns that God changes your people, Moses, that you brought up out of Egypt. And you may have noticed that our chapter starts off the same way. Verse 1, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't at all like what foolish husbands do sometimes. You know, we say to our wives, your, your son is misbehaving. <laughs> oh, it's, 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 it's my son, is it? <laughs> That's not what God is doing here, playing games with, with pronouns. Uh, as we said, he, God is creating the distance that we talked about because of their sin. Well, Moses is respectfully pushing back and saying, you should consider this nation as your people. He's asking God to forgive Israel and fully take them back. And God's response is very interesting. He says to Moses... My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. You can't see it in the English, but in the Hebrew, the you is singular. 
So Moses is praying they would take the whole people back, and God says, I will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Moses presses ahead with the same request in a bold way in verses 15 and 16. Notice how he takes God's commitment of favor to him and brings the people into it. If your presence does not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? There's an old word that we used to use to describe prayer. We don't use it much anymore. It's importunity, importunate prayer. It means persistent prayer. Notice how Moses is going to keep praying until he gets the object of his prayer. Verse 17, God says he's reversing what he had pronounced he would do in verse 3. Let's let that sink in for a moment. Moses' intercessory prayer leads to God relenting on what he said he would do. His prayer works. Now, let's, let's drive home this, this point about prayer. This is really important stuff to us. It's so important that GBC is a church that believes in the sovereignty of God in all things. It's important that we believe that because God's word everywhere teaches it. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God knows the end from the beginning. God works all things after the counsel of his will. We ought never try to diminish the sovereignty of God. We ought never question the sovereignty of God. However, there's a mistaken human logic that goes something like this. Since God is sovereign, there's no real reason to pray. Since God is sovereign, I'm going to take a nap. He already knows what's going to happen, right? And this can even seem sort of spiritual. I'm just resting in the sovereignty of God in my prayerlessness. Well, to resignation is not biblical spirituality. Moses prays with a mind to win a change of outcome. You know, the Apostle Paul does the same thing in the New Testament. The the longest extended meditation on the sovereignty of God in the election of sinners is Romans 9 to 11. And right in the middle of that, Paul says, it is my heart's earnest desire and prayer for them that they may be saved. Now you say, look, I've got questions about that. Well, I do too. But let's take the biblical revelation at face value and say that God is sovereign over all things, and so we should pray like crazy for God's purposes to be manifest in the lives of the people around us. Prayer changes things. It doesn't threaten the sovereignty of God because God's sovereignty is over the means as well as the ends. He may be intending to bring about salvation for that prodigal child through the prayers of his mom and dad. 
He, he might be intending to bring about reconciliation between those two friends of yours that are, that are unreconciled through your prayers. So pray and don't give up. Okay, let's think about it. <clears throat> let's think about application. Two applications here. Uh, first, realize that Jesus Christ is the greater Moses. Uh, he's the favored intercessor who, who, because of his death on the cross, reconciled lost sinners to God. I don't have a tent of meeting, neither do you. But because of the person and work of Jesus, we have access into the very throne room of God by his grace. So if you're here and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have good news for you this morning. Actually, I have bad news, but I have good news. The bad news is, is like I said from Psalm 66, if, if, if you're living unreconciled to God, then he, he's not listening to your prayers. The, the prayer that he will listen to first and foremost is a prayer where you turn away from your sins and you trust in him. You believe in him. You say, you say Lord, I, I believe the message that I've heard about what Jesus did on the cross. I believe that there's nothing I can do to reconcile myself. So I'm going to trust in Christ. But friend, don't you see that that then opens the door? Because Jesus was the favored intercessor, he's the one that if you trust in him, you're united with the Father. You're reconciled to him. I pray you do that this morning. I'd love to talk to you more the door afterwards, talk to someone around you. Second, brothers and sisters, what are we doing with this incredible gift of prayer? When we're redeemed, we step into the shoes of Moses. We are those who through faith in Christ have now found favor in his sight. We can now go into God's presence and intercede for others to be restored to a right relationship with God. So who are you interceding for? It shouldn't be an empty set. It shouldn't be a blank list. Who, who around you, even this morning, even right now, starting this week, who could you be praying regularly for that God would bring them to faith in Christ, that he would change their heart, that he would give you opportunities to talk with them about faith? Beloved, who are we interceding for? Restoration began with repentance, continued through the prayers of a, an intercessor favored by God. All of this is founded and fueled by, number three, the glory of God. Let's look at verses 18 through 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, 
but my face shall not be seen. It's not immediately clear what Moses is thinking here. Uh, Many have been surprised by his audacity. He gained his request. God granted his prayer. And he's asking for still more. The specific request is for God to show him, show Moses, his glory. We could observe that Moses has already seen so much of God's glory, hasn't he? I mean, twice it explicitly has said this in the text of Exodus. And in chapter 16, the story about the manna, God says, tomorrow I will show you my glory. The glory was in the providing of the food for hundreds of thousands of people. And then in chapter 24, with all the gathered elders of Israel and the ratification of the covenant, we're told that God's glory came down on Mount Sinai. But many other times, Moses witnessed God's glory. Think about the burning bush, parting of the Red Sea, the plagues that came on Egypt, the pillar of fire and cloud. So so why this request? Well, I have no other answer than that Moses wanted to know God more, that that he wasn't relying on past experiences. He he wanted to press on to know the Lord. You know, friends, past experience is, is never enough for us. It's good for us to remember, but it, it's always a question of are we seeking God today? Now, what unfolds is so interesting because God is going to propose a a limited manifestation of his glory. You know, he's going to hide him in a a crevice of the rock. I assume this is in the base of of Mount Sinai. He's going to cover him with his hand. He's going to pass by. He can see his back. All of this is what we call anthropomorphic imagery. It just means describing God using human characteristics. Uh, God doesn't have a hand, he doesn't have a face, he doesn't have a back, he's a, he's a spiritual being that doesn't have a body like ours. So when it says all of this, it, it means to say that this is a deflected, a partial, a muted view of his glory. When it says that nobody can see his face and live, it, it means that humans can't handle the full experience of his glory. But what is the glory? There's something visible about it. I I assume there is some sort of bright, shining light. God is described as dwelling in unapproachable light. It seems there's something visible Moses is being shielded from, but, but what I want us to zero in on is that the glory of God is primarily a proclamation here, a, a reminder that we live in the age of the ear not the age of the eye. What does he say here? I I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Uh, The word goodness here, it actually means good benefits, good things. It refers to all the good gifts that he gives to his people that mark them out. As, as the recipients of his grace and mercy. 
He forgives sin and he answers prayer and he provides for physical needs and offers the hope of eternal life. How does all his goodness, all God's good gifts pass before him? Well, it's in the proclamation of his name, the Lord. This is who he is, the covenant name of God by which he makes and keeps promises to his people, by which he shows them his grace and his mercy. Free grace. He will be gracious to whom he is gracious. He will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. Friends, this is the final piece to the restoration puzzle. It makes sense that God would require repentance, humility, contrition before restoring the sinner. And it even makes sense that that one favored by God In our case, his own son, Jesus, would be able to intercede on our behalf. But all of this could make for a begrudging restoration of the sinner. Does God want to restore us? Perhaps we can conclude that his his glory is in his judgment alone. But the God who is there is a God whose glory is in his goodness to his people. Can you see that? It's the glory of God to show grace to people who don't deserve it. It's the glory of God to have mercy on a people who, who have no reason to claim anything. This is the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so that means the sinner need never worry that they are beyond help, beyond grace, beyond hope. We need never wonder if we've used up our chances with God. Oh God, here I am again confessing the same sin to you. You can't use up the goodness of God in his grace and his mercy. For the person who finds himself once again in the idolatrous swamp of Exodus 32, Worshipping money and marriage, prestige, eating, alcohol, drugs. For those worshipping that which is false and facing the dread consequences of their decision, we hear these words and we have hope. They were read to us earlier in the service. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. There's more glory in redemption than in creation. Let's pray.